Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, probably go ahead and get started here in just a minute. Let's go ahead and open up a word of prayer, and we can get into our study. We're starting a new study today. That's why I'm, I'm anxious to get into it. Plus, I don't know how long it's going to take, so I want to use as much time as I can. So let's go open a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we just give you praise, Lord, for another opportunity that we have as a body of believers to come together and, and uh, just gather as your church to, to worship you, Lord, to praise you, to exhort one another, Lord, and encourage one another, and pray, Lord, that uh, you'd be with us uh, during our times of teaching as well. Pray, Lord, that we would get understanding from your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the word that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just all that you have uh, blessed us with uh, through the uh, prophets and apostles, Lord, that have given us your word. And, and we thank you so much for them and for their uh, work, Lord, that you use to uh, establish the foundation of the church. Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us now as we embark on a new study. Pray, Lord, that you'd be with us uh, as we look at the book of Romans, and pray, Lord, that this would be a time that would glorify and honor you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are starting a study in the book of Romans this morning with me. If you'll go ahead and turn there with me. The book of Romans... At its very heart is a gospel presentation. It is a very thorough, very detailed gospel presentation. It's a book that has been influential in the lives of many great people throughout church history. Some names you might recognize like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley. In fact, all of those people would claim uh, that the book of Romans was life-changing in some way for them. And in fact, John Wesley would claim that he came to salvation after hearing some of Martin Luther's thoughts on the book of Romans. Many people would claim, in fact, I actually knew a girl in college uh, who would claim that they were saved through reading the book of Romans. That's not to say that Romans is a greater book than any other book in the Bible. All of God's word is God-breathed and profitable for us to know and to understand, but it's certainly an essential element of the church's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's definitely worthy of our study of it. As far as the background of the letter goes, there isn't a lot we know about the church at Rome. We know that it was written by the Apostle Paul. We know the letter was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in Corinth, on his third missionary journey, which would date this epistle around 58 AD. It is the longest of Paul's letters, and it's written to a church that he did not plant. And not only did he not plant it, but he had never even visited the city of Rome before he wrote this letter to the church there. There's an indication throughout the book that he knew several people in the church, especially when we get to the final chapters of the letter, he will send personal greetings to people there. So he was familiar with certain people that were there. But when it comes right down to it, we just don't know a lot about how Paul had any association with this church at Rome. And some of that will come out as we move through our study of the letter. There are some theories about how the church started, but really when it comes down to it, those are just theories. Some say that Peter planted the church. I think that's especially popular in the Roman Catholic culture. Some say it was those who were saved during Pentecost that traveled back to Rome. And if you recall at Pentecost, there were Jews from different countries from really all over the world, it says, that had come together to Jerusalem. And when the church first started, many got saved and then they would go back to their homes. So some people think that's how the church at Rome got started. They were saved at Pentecost and they came back to Rome. Are those possibilities? Yes, they are. But each of them has their problems, not the least of which is that both of these cases, there would have been a decidedly Jewish flavor to the makeup of the church. And Paul makes it clear throughout the letter 
that this is very much a church comprised of Gentile believers, and we'll see that as we go through it. As I said, the book is primarily a detailed account of the gospel, and it can be broken down into a few major sections. The first 17 verses of chapter 1 is, serves as an introduction. This is the longest of Paul's greetings to any of his, in any of his letters, and he gives a purpose statement in verses 16 and 17. Then, in, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, you have condemnation, a detailed account of the sin problem that man has, and we'll see that there is condemnation of both Jew and Gentile. Then starting in verse 21 of chapter 3 through chapter 5, we have justification. God's solution to the sin problem. How can someone who is condemned be justified? Then in chapters 6 through 8, we have the what now section. Sanctification. Once a person has been saved, once they have been justified or declared righteous by God, what is true of their life now in contrast to the way that they lived before? Chapters 9 through 11, you have the explanation, or some would say the vindication section of the letter. How does God's plan of salvation, especially as given to Gentiles, how does that not cancel out his plans for Israel? What about the plans for Israel? And in in that section, we'll, we'll see how God's promises are absolute. And then we have, starting chapter 12 through chapter 15, verse 33, we have an exhortation section. How does this all apply? In light of all that has come before, as Paul lays out 11 chapters of doctrine, in light of all of that, how do we live our lives each day as believers? That's the section where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And then you have verse 34 of chapter 15 through the end of the book, through 16, is the conclusion and his final greetings. So that's really how the book Unfolds, And as we go through it, we need to keep in mind that it is an unfolding of God's plan. There are things that we'll see in the first chapters talking about sin and condemnation that might feel a little off as we look at them as believers. But we'll need to keep in mind that it's because his discussion at that point has not gotten to justification yet. And we'll talk about those points as, as we get to them. For now, we're going to begin at the beginning. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 1. It's a good place to start, right? Verse 1, chapter 1, where we see the start of Paul's greeting and how he introduces himself to the church at Rome. So verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And right away we know what? First thing that we know was that this letter was written by Paul. That's not in dispute by anyone. A man who was a Jew... He was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. He was previously a zealot of Judaism against the church, but then was saved and became one of the primary apostles to carry the gospel to the world. And here, as was the typical fashion, as the writer of the letter, he is introducing himself to them. And he introduces himself with three distinct traits about himself. He says three things about himself here. He says he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus, a called apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And the first thing I want you to note here is that none of these things are things that he can take credit of or take credit for in and of himself. They are all things that are true of him because of what was done to him or for him by God. In other words, as he writes to the believers in this church whom he doesn't even really know, He doesn't have a close association with this church. He introduces himself solely by his relationship to God. If you remember back to when he was saved in Acts chapter 9, if you're familiar with that account, Paul, or Saul as he was known of at the time, was coming off of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He held the coats for Stephen's murderers. As they were murdering Stephen, Paul was standing there, here, let me hold your coats while you kill that guy. He was going out and ravaging the church, throwing men and women from the church in prison, just simply because they belonged to the way. They were were believers in Jesus Christ. He was breathing threats and murder against the church as as he went in to get letters to go to the city of Damascus, 
Damascus and arrest more Christians. And while he was on the way to Damascus with these letters in hand, that's when Jesus Christ appears to him on the road, blinding light, blinds Paul, and he tells him, you are going to the city and I will show you what you must do. In that account, there's no must, there's no fuss, there's no argument, there's no exchange between Paul and Christ. Oh, convince me, Jesus, that you're the one I should follow. No, Paul is saved at that point. You go, Jesus says, and I will show you what you must do for me. Later on in that chapter, Jesus tells Ananias, who's a believer in the city of Damascus, he tells him to go find Paul. And he says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. I'll show him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. That was Paul's conversion. That was how Paul was saved. Now, in a letter that is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we see here, even in Paul's personal greeting, is lesson number one about the gospel. There is a cost to accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that cost is yourself. And what we see in these first three verses are things that Paul talks about, is that what he, ha- what he is now that he is a believer in Jesus Christ. So what are the three things that he says about himself here? He says, first of all, that he is a bondservant of Christ Jesus. This means a slave. It means one whose life is not his own. He belongs to someone else. He is under someone else's authority and control. And here he says that that someone else is Jesus Christ. Paul has given his life completely over in submission to Christ Jesus. Now, make no mistake, that's not because he is a Christian who chose to do that. That he is one of those special Christians who has decided to go all in on the faith, right? Sometimes we think, oh, there's, there's, yeah, there's the people that are committed, and then there's the rest of us. No, this is simply because he is a Christian. This is what a Christian is. Again, this is part of the cost I talked about. Turn with me over to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 6th chapter. I will read a lot of verses for you, but I'm also going to make you turn to several verses today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And look down at what Paul says in verse 19. He says there, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. What does that mean? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. It means that you don't belong to you. You now belong to God. And that's not just Paul. That's not what he's just saying about committed Christians. That's what's true of Christians, period. You don't belong to you. You belong to Jesus Christ. In the same way, in Ephesians chapter 6, while giving instructions to those who are slaves to others here on earth, right? He gives instructions to husbands and wives and then parents and children. Then he also gives instructions to the slave master-slave relationship, which we would look at as more of an employee-employer relationship. But he's giving instructions to these people that were considered slaves. And he says in those instructions, in verse 5 of Ephesians 6, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye surface as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You need to do your work for them. That's the relationship you have here on earth, all the while keeping in mind who it is that you're really doing your work for. All that you do, you do with an attitude of doing your work for Christ. As slaves of Christ. That is an attitude that comes from a desire to do the will of God from the heart. This is what defines a Christian. This is what we have signed up for in Christianity. So the first thing that we need to realize, if we have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we have entered into a life of servitude to our Lord. He has bought us with a price, and we now live to serve him. Paul also says, back in Romans 1, that he's a called apostle. He is an apostle by calling. He didn't make himself an apostle. 
He didn't choose to say, I'm going to sign up to be an apostle. He was called to that position by divine appointment. Apostle is one who is sent as a representative of someone else. This is clearly seen again in Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Paul calls him, he approaches, or sorry, God calls him, approaches him, and told him what it is he must do, and called him to be an apostle to himself. Are apostles present today? No, they're not. Not in the sense that we see them in the New Testament, as far as the official office and gifting of God. There were were some unique things that were true of apostles. Apostles must have seen Jesus Christ after his resurrection from the dead. Paul tells the Corinthians that he was the last one that Christ appeared to in 1 Corinthians 15. Apostles must have the ability to perform signs and wonders. They had this ability in order to validate their ministry, to provide credibility for the message that they proclaimed, as well as for the work that they were called to do, and that was to start and grow the newly created church. The apostles were tasked in the early church to start the church and provide the foundation for the church. Ephesians 2.20, Paul tells the church at Ephesus that Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and and the prophets build the foundation. They were instrumental in the beginning for the start of the church. But there are no apostles today. And there's no longer a need for apostles. Why? Because through them we have the completed revelation of the word of God. In our Bibles... We have all that God wanted to communicate us, communicate to us in the church. There's no more need for that direct revelation from God. So when somebody today says, I'm an apostle, no, they're not. Now, some might say it simply means being sent. So I just call myself an apostle because I've been sent out to share Christ. I'm just saying that it's my job to go out and share Christ with people because that's what calls us, God calls us to do. Some people make that argument. To which I would say, okay, fine, go out and share Christ. But call yourself something else. Because apostles in the Bible had direct revelation. They had seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. And they were performing the signs of an apostle through signs and wonders in order to validate their ministry. People aren't doing that today. So call yourself something else. Like, I don't know, a Christian. Call yourself a Christian. Because all Christians or to be going out and sharing the gospel of Christ. That's something that we're all supposed to do. Now, in Paul's case, he really was an apostle. He was called by God to be an apostle. And we'll find out in just a bit that his apostleship was unique. His calling was slightly different than that of the other apostles. And we'll get to that here shortly. And we'll talk about that word called in just a little bit as well. Now, the third thing that Paul says about himself in verse 1 is that he was set apart for the gospel of God. Again, not something Paul did himself, but he was set apart for the gospel. God set him apart for this ministry. You understand this was part and parcel with his ministry as an apostle. Paul gets more specific here as he introduces himself. I'm a slave of Christ. I was tasked with being an apostle, and the purpose of my ministry is found in the gospel. Now, when did this happen, this setting apart? When was he set apart for this? Well, you might say it was in Acts chapter 9. We talked about it already, where Jesus tells him what he must do. But that's not what Paul says he was set apart. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says it happened much earlier than that. He says in Galatians 1.15, But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace. He says in that verse that he was set apart Long before he was on the road to Damascus. He was saved on the road to Damascus. The call came to him at that time, but he was set apart much earlier than that. From his mother's womb, he says he was set apart. We sometimes get the idea that salvation is a spur-of-the-moment thing, that, they're, that we share with someone, they hear the gospel, and then they decide, hey, that sounds really good, and I'll buy into that. We'd all like that to happen whenever we share the gospel, wouldn't we? But the reality is that there's more to it than that. We'll come to find out later in the book of Romans when we get to chapter 8 that our salvation is not simply a point in time. It's not something that just accidentally happens to someone or is just a matter of a simple split-second decision. 
No, salvation is a well-orchestrated process brought about by the sovereignty of God. Someday, when we get to chapter 8, which won't be next week, it'll be a while, we'll see that salvation is a process of foreknowledge to predestination to calling to justification to glorification. An unbreakable chain of God's actions upon us. And that's in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. There isn't a single person who was ever, is ever, or will ever be saved that doesn't go through that entire process. No one surprises God and becomes saved that he didn't know about. No one surprises God and rejects the gospel for which he had set them apart, which he had called them to. Paul was set apart, he was called, and he was a bondservant, all because of God's sovereign actions in his life, not because of anything that he had done. Now, verse 1, that's who Paul was. That's his introduction to himself. In a typical letter, one would say who they were, and they would go into then who they were writing to. But we don't get to see that until we get to verse 7. You could actually read verse 1 and then verse 7 right together, and you get the to and the from of this letter. In verses 2 through 6... We have a parenthesis or an aside where he expounds on what he says at the end of the verse that he was set apart for, the gospel of God. So here's Paul. He talks about the gospel of God. Now he has to, or he mentions the gospel of God. Now he has to talk about the gospel of God. So he identifies himself. um, What he's saying here, even as he identifies himself, is that he is a man who is on a mission for the gospel. Why? Because that's why he was saved. So we see it in the verses concerning his conversion in Acts chapter 9, where he said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. What choice did Paul have? None. That's what he was saved to do. So when he says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, that's what he's talking about. So it's no wonder that when Paul talks about the gospel to this Gentile church, he's going to go off on a tangent here and expound on the idea of the gospel for a bit, because this is literally his life's purpose. So what is the gospel? It's a word that simply means good news, but we know that phrase to be a gross understatement of what it truly is. To just call it good news almost seems to not do it justice, because really it is the best news that the world has ever heard, that has ever come into the world. So he's, as he continues, he says three things about the gospel here. He says, first of all, well, it says, The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. So the first thing he says that we noted is that it's the gospel of God. It gets its source from God. The first thing that Paul notes is that this gospel, this good news, it's not Paul's good news. It's not our good news. It's God's good news. God is the source of the gospel. And Paul went on, went out proclaiming the message. It wasn't something that he could alter or change, and that's something important for us to realize as well. It wasn't something that he could decide, you know, people aren't responding to this part the way that I think that they should. Whenever I mention this, people shut me out. So I'm going to leave that out, or I'm going to change it. No, because it wasn't his good news to change. It's God's good news. God has given good news to the world, and Paul was a messenger of that good news. So that's the first thing that he notes about it, is that it's of God. Then in verse 2, he says the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The prophets here would be the Old Testament writers. You know what's remarkable remarkable about the gospel? There's a lot of things remarkable about the gospel. But one of the things that's remarkable about the gospel message is that when it was fully and finally revealed... It was God's worst kept secret because it was never a secret at all. For centuries, the writers of the Old Testament had been writing about a coming Savior. They had been writing about how God was going to provide a means of salvation. God didn't hide that. He provided that information throughout the Old Testament. In all of the Holy Scriptures, everything pointed to Jesus Christ. You can find any number of places in the Old Testament that point to Christ coming, the anticipation surrounding that. Isaiah 53, for example, probably one of the most complete references to the suffering of the Messiah, says that he was crushed for our iniquities, pierced through for our transgressions. He himself bore the sin of many. He interceded for the transgressors. 
The gospel is good, it is powerful, but it isn't new. It was a long time coming, and God had always planned on providing salvation, and he never hid that plan from people. In the book of Romans, Paul will refer to 61 Old Testament passages. 61 times he will go back and show how the truth of the gospel that he's presenting will relate back to what the Old Testament writers said before. So the gospel isn't new. It was a long time coming. We saw several weeks ago uh, on Easter when Josh taught through 1 Corinthians 15. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about how he preached the gospel to the church at Corinth. And he said even there in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Once again, nothing new. The Scriptures declared that the Messiah would come and that salvation would be provided. And the Old Testament saints, their salvation came to them because they believed what God had promised to them. We'll see when we get to chapter 4 that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And what did Abraham believe? He didn't know the full details of the gospel like we do, but he believed in God's promise of deliverance and God's promise of a redeemer. So even the Old Testament writers wrote about the good news of God. Okay, so the gospel is of God, and it was promised beforehand. God fulfills his promises. The gospel came. The gospel is here. Proof that God makes good on his promises. But now, there's a third thing that he says about the gospel. The gospel is concerning his son, and that's Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And this seems so simple, but it's very important that we keep this point in mind at all times because there is no good news there is no gospel without Jesus Christ the phrases the gospel and concerning his son are really directly related here right they go hand in hand there's there are equivalent statements people try to present the gospel today and they want to talk about things like well let's talk about God's love Or let's talk about God's plan. Or let's talk about a plan for your life that God has for you. But you know the topic that sometimes gets forgotten. Jesus. Well, I don't like bringing up Jesus because he's controversial. I don't like bringing that up because people don't want to hear it. People shut me out whenever I start to bring up Jesus. So we try to keep it simple. We try to keep it non-threatening. That's not simple. That's a powerless gospel if it doesn't include Jesus Christ. That's a false message that doesn't save. The gospel is nothing without the Son. There is no gospel without the Son. Okay, so now having mentioned the Son, what does Paul do? Now he talks about the Son. Paul can't help himself. I love love Paul. I really do. Paul can't help himself. He talks about something, then he has to expound on that topic, right? He talked about the gospel a minute ago, then he has to tell you more about the gospel. Now he's talking about the Son. Now he has to tell us more and more, get deeper and deeper about the Son. So that's what he does, starting in verse 3, or in the rest of verse 3. It says, His Son, whom, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here he says a couple things about the Son and how they are very important things, um, and they are very important things he presents here. Two vital things for the gospel message. The Son of God coming to earth in the flesh and the Son of God being raised from the dead. Two vitally important messages, parts of the gospel message. First off, he says he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he did not become the Son of God at that time. He was always the Son of God. But when he came to earth, he was born of a descendant of David. He fulfilled a unique new role, a role of leaving glory to take on humanity, something that was essential for providing the plan of salvation. 
If he had not come to earth to take on humanity, there would be no salvation. The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And then down in verse 17 of the same chapter, he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Taking on humanity, coming to earth in the flesh, was an essential part of the plan of salvation. He had to be made like his brethren. He also partook of the same flesh and blood so that he might render the devil powerless. So he took on flesh. He became not only God, but the God-man at that point. But it also says here that he was born of a descendant of David. Paul makes a point of what line he came down to, which is also important of him because he gets more specific here. Because this fulfills Old Testament promises and prophecies about him. Again, going back to that previous statement about the gospel being promised beforehand in the Old Testament. When Christ came, he had to be flesh. He had to be real flesh and blood. But beyond that, he also had to be of the kingly line of David. Because that's what was promised. That's what was prophesied of him. To establish his kingdom in that line forever. It wasn't good enough for him to come as anyone and say, oh, well, close enough. At least I got here. That's not how it worked. So the prophecies had to be fulfilled about him. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied this in Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now that prophecy has a whole element as far as his first coming and his second coming, and how the Old Testament prophets could not see the distinction, didn't see the two comings. But the idea holds true here. For the Messiah to rule and to reign, he had to be born of the line of David. And so according to the flesh, as we see Paul say here, uh, say here that is what the Son did. He came to earth, born of a woman, a descendant of David, according to the flesh. That was the beginning of his work of salvation that had to happen for him to be a sacrifice. But now we come to verse 4. And we see another element here. That moves us further along in the way that God's gospel plan works. It says, declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So he came to earth in the flesh. Descendant of David. Took on or became flesh at that point in time. Well here we see that at his resurrection he became the son of God with power by the resurrection. The word in most translations there is the word declared. I think most translations have it that. But the word really means to appoint. It doesn't mean to declare. It means to appoint or to define something. Nowhere else in scripture does it mean to declare or to simply show something as it seems to indicate by using that word declare. It means that someone or something is appointed, determined, even predetermined to be something in the other places that it's used. So what I think Paul is saying here is just like in verse 3, when the Son of God took on something new at his incarnation, here he was appointed something new as well. He took on something new. He became the Son of God with the power to save. Because the power only came about after the completion of God's plan. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying when I say that. It's not saying that he wasn't the son of God before his resurrection. That wasn't new. He was always the son of God. He was always the second person of the Trinity. And it's also not saying that he didn't have power before his resurrection. He is God. He has always had power. But the difference is that prior to his resurrection, the elements of God's plan had not yet taken place that provided the power for salvation to occur. This power referred to here is the same power that Paul will talk about 
in verse 16, part of the purpose statement for the entire letter, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When Jesus Christ became flesh, he had to become flesh. Why? Because only God in the flesh could provide a sacrifice for sins. If he hadn't become flesh and died and been buried and been resurrected, there would be no power to save from sin. If the Son of God had come to earth, taught some good things for a few years, and then went back up to heaven, no one would be saved from their sins. If he had come to earth, lived a long life, taught a few things, and and died at an old age and stayed dead, no one would be saved from their sins. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the great passage on the resurrection. What does Paul say about it here? I read you a couple verses earlier, verses 3 and 4, where Paul talked about how Christ died according to the Scriptures and was raised according to the Scriptures for those uh, fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. But look in 1 Corinthians 15, down at verse 16, where he's making a defense of the resurrection. He says in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Christ had not been raised, faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If there was no resurrection, there's no salvation. In the next verse, he talks about those that have died would have perished if Christ had not been raised. Why? Because the work of redemption would not have been accomplished according to the plans and the purposes of God. You understand, this was the only way for God to provide salvation. It wasn't some method that he picked out of a hat. I think sometimes we look at God and we see his plans and we think, oh, well, God just decided to do it this way. And there may be some elements that that was true. But this was the only way that he could provide salvation. The only way that God could satisfy the demands that his holiness, his justice, his righteousness required for men to be made right again with him. And so when Jesus Christ came and died and was raised from the dead, then the work of salvation was finished. And that power to save was then appointed or given to the Son. He was appointed the Son of God with power. This is also why the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices were never able to save. The blood of bulls and goats were never able to save. We read that in Hebrews 10.4. They could not take away sins. What can? The message of the gospel of God concerning his Son, who because of the resurrection from the dead gave him that predetermined power to save. It also says that it was according to the spirit of holiness. He has that phrase on here as well. This is referring to the Holy Spirit. It's a bit of an unusual way to say the Holy Spirit. Words used here are not specifically found in other places, but the idea that Paul is conveying here directly relates to what he said about the flesh in verse 3. He was born according to the flesh, and here he's raised according to the Spirit. We'll see when we get to chapter 8. Again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers, making us alive together with Christ, indwelling us, promising us physical resurrection as a part of our salvation. It's a vital part of the salvation package. So while he came in the flesh to take care of the problems in the flesh after his resurrection with the plan completed... He had the power to make people spiritually alive, and the Holy Spirit is active in that part of the plan. The last phrase in verse 4 puts it all together. It takes us where, what is now the role of Christ? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He started off by simply referring to him as the Son of God, and now we come to what the gospel, that is all about the Son, the gospel is all about the Son, what that comes to mean for us. Because of all this, because of what he has done, because of what he made possible through his work on the cross, we are able to call him Lord. Now note, Paul doesn't say the the Lord. He says our Lord. Belief 
in the gospel makes our relationship to Jesus Christ personal. And in the next few verses, we'll see that it was personal to Paul, and it's personal to the Romans. And it's personal to us as well. Look what he says starting in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Through whom we, Paul connects himself here to Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we. This is the flip side of what he first, of how he first mentioned himself, introduced himself back in verse 1. Remember there he said he was the bondservant of Christ. Now we see Christ Jesus our Lord, and it is through him, because of what he has done for us, the things that Paul presents here next are possible. He talks about the grace that he was given. He was given grace and apostleship. The construction here, again, equates these two things. And what that means is that this, his apostleship was a, was a gift of grace given to Paul. They aren't two separate things. They're related to each other. This is a spiritual gift. And we'll talk about spiritual gifts in the book of Romans. I love this section because there's a lot of things we can point to in just this, these few verses and say, oh, we'll get there in this chapter, we'll get there in this chapter. But we'll talk about spiritual gifts when we get to Romans chapter 12. Again, it's a ways off. That's not next week. But right off the bat, Paul talks about the grace gift given to him. Turn with me over to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about some of the speaking gifts given to the church. He'll mention apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But look at what he says in the beginning of the discussion in in verse 7 of, of Ephesians 4. He says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a captive of uh, a cap. He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The picture here, this has always been kind of a muddy passage for me, but the picture here is of the victor giving out gifts in victory. And this leads into a discussion on gifts given to build and edify the church. Well, what was true of the resurrection of Christ? He defeated death. He defeated the power of Satan. We just saw that he was appointed the son with power. He was victorious over sin and death. He now has the power to save. Then he ascended to heaven. And what was the next event after Christ ascended to heaven? If you remember back in the first couple chapters of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. Jesus had said, if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come, in John 16, 7. So the Spirit comes, indwells believers, and Christ, the victor over sin and death, gives out gifts of his grace through his Spirit. Those are in the form of spiritual gifts that are given to the church, and it's that same pattern that Paul is showing and talking about here. So in this case, Paul says here that the gift of grace given to him was that of an apostle, which we saw back in verse 1. He was a called apostle. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you also have a gift from God, a grace gift, a spiritual gift. You are not an apostle. We talked about that. But you do have a spiritual gift. You are to use your gift just as Paul did for the benefit of the church. And we'll talk about those gifts more again in later studies. But the grace given to Paul had a specific purpose, which he brings up next. He says, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. So first off, we'll mention that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And I mentioned earlier that the Roman church was a Gentile church. And Paul's specifically calling out that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. He specifically mentions that here. He was called to minister and share the gospel, not primarily to the Jews, even though we said earlier that Paul was what? He was a Jew. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a a Pharisee. We read that in Philippians chapter 3. Before he was saved, he took a great amount of pride in his Jewish heritage. And so what did God do? He made him the apostle to the Gentiles. 
little bit of irony there, I think. It's not as if he never spoke to Jews or that no Jew ever believed the gospel that Paul preached, but primarily the focus of his ministry was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Turn over to chapter 15 of Romans. We see the same kind of statement here from Paul, even as he's closing out the letter. And there's other places we'll see it as well, but chapter 15. We'll see it in chapter 11 again, too. But. So, Romans 15, look at verse 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And you see here again, the grace of God given to him to minister to the Gentiles, right? Uh, Like I said, chapter 11, he actually calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. So when God saved Paul, he saved him and commissioned him to go to the Gentiles. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 5, look again at the phrase he uses here. To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. He didn't just go to the Gentiles. He was tasked with bringing about obedience of faith among them. I love the fact that obedience and faith here are tied together. Because belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ is an act of obedience. It's our very first act of obedience. And it's from that first act of obedience that we are then placed into a lifelong relationship of obedience to God. We already saw this in Paul's life. We saw this in how Paul introduced himself. The first thing he says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We see this in other places as well. Obedience and faith going together. John 3, in the Gospel of John, John 3.36, Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In this passage, Jesus equates the two concepts, belief and obedience. If you believe, you have life, but if you don't obey, the wrath of God abides on you. Another passage that refers to this is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Probably very familiar with this, these verses. It says, Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The idea here is Paul talking about Life without the gospel, the unbelieving world, characterized by living a life according to the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. Those are unbelievers. So obedience and salvation are very tightly tied together. We obey God when we accept the gospel. And then, after we become believers, he is our Lord and we are bondservants of him. There is an expectation of obedience that will take place in our relationship with him. And that once again goes back to that, that cost that we are no longer our own. And for this, we point to chapter 6. When we get to chapter 6, we'll talk about this. So make note of that phrase then at the end of verse 5, for his name's sake. Because this is really what the gospel is all about. Even the salvation of the lost is for his name's sake. It's for the glory of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that you weren't saved for you. You were saved for God. When a lost soul is saved, Jesus Christ is glorified. Yes, it's a good thing that that person is not going to hell. Yes, they can rejoice in being able to spend all eternity in glory with the Lord. There is personal benefit that we obviously get from being saved. But primarily, the benefit of a soul being saved is that the name of Jesus Christ is glorified. Philippians 2, verse 9, tells us that after Christ's work on the cross was finished, he was highly exalted, and the Father bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Glory to God, glory to the Son, glory to the Father is what the work of salvation is all about. Now in verse 6, we see him turn from what the gospel means to him personally, and he now is going to apply it to his Roman readers, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. He hasn't even specifically addressed them yet. We're, we're six verses in. This is the sixth verse. And he hasn't even specifically talked to them yet. He hasn't called them by name. That will come in the next verse. But even before he does that, he tells them what he already knows to be true about them. He says, among whom. This phrase here, among whom? Among the Gentiles. The reference he just made there at the end of verse 5. That is what they are. This is not a Jewish Congregation in Rome, this is a Gentile congregation. Paul here is asserting his relationship to them. Remember that this is a greeting, right? He's just this introduction phase of what Paul is, who he is, and what he's trying to get across. This is that salutation where he's telling them who he is. And one of the things that he is is an apostle to the Gentiles. And they are among that group. He's reminding them they are among that group. Therefore, Paul is writing to them. Um, just in case they wondered, who is this guy? Who's Paul? I don't know Paul. I've never met Paul. Why is Paul writing to us? Well, here he's introducing himself as apostle to the Gentiles, among whom you fit into that category. And he tells them that they are what? The called of Jesus Christ. This means they're saved. Called means they're saved. The word called It's the same word he used to describe himself back in verse 1. He was a called apostle. This is the effectual, or what we call the efficacious call. It's a call that always results in something. In this case, it's the salvation of the one who was called. On the road to Damascus, Paul was called. I think that is like the most vivid example of this. He was called. Paul had no choice there. God told him what he would have to do. In the New Testament epistles, this is the call that's always referred to, this effectual call. When God calls someone in this way, they are saved. Salvation is brought about in them through saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospels, there are times when Jesus refers to what's what's referred to as a more general call, where many are called but few are chosen, Uh, There, Jesus is talking about the general sense where the gospel is available, where it's given out to all, but few actually come to saving faith. But when Paul talks about people being called, when he's talking to these churches and, and talking about their calling, he's talking about this effectual call. So look with me now into chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and we'll look at verse 28. I mentioned this earlier. I'm actually amazed we haven't gone to this earlier, but we're going to it now. Look at Romans chapter 8, down in verse 28. We'll see how this fits in with the process of salvation. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Everybody knows that part. Everybody knows that part of the verse. They love that part of the verse. That's a verse that many, many people have as their, this is my verse. But continue on. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is it, the unbreakable chain of salvation. No one has ever been saved or ever will be saved outside of this process. So these Romans, they were called, and I would love to go through these verses right now. I would love to talk more about these verses, but we will get to chapter 8 in due time. So we will talk about them when we get to chapter 8. So these Romans, they were called and they were saved. How do we know that they were saved? How do we know that Paul believes that they're saved? Because he then turns specifically to address them in verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To all. So here's the second part of the greeting. Paul finally gets to it from Paul. To, from Paul to all of you. 
Remember, 2 through 6 were that aside, an elaboration on the gospel that he mentioned in his introduction in verse 1. Now he turns specifically to the ones to whom he is writing this letter. He refers to them as the called of Jesus Christ in verse 6. Now in verse 7, they are the beloved, they are saints. And not only saints, but what kind of saints? Called saints. There's the same word again. Same word he used in verse 1, he used it in verse 6, and now he's using it here. You might have a little word as squeezed in there, or maybe even the word to be, called to be saints or called as saints. But that's not what it says. This is called saints. Just as earlier, Paul referred to himself as a called apostle. It matters because the two are equated, called and saints. One's set apart and one's called. Keep in mind, a saint is not a special super-Christian of some sort. It's a Christian. That's what a saint is. You don't need to achieve a special level to be a saint. If you have placed your faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are a saint. This applies to everyone who is in the church. They are beloved of God. They are called. They are saints. All of those things are equal. This is important because it shows the emphasis on what happened to them, on why they are saved. People that say, oh, you know, I made a decision. I decided I loved God, and so I, I, I made a decision for him. But that's not what happened. God loved you. If God hadn't loved you first, you wouldn't have loved him. He loved you. He called you. He saved you. Your salvation begins and ends with God. He started it, he set you apart, he chose you, he called you, he loved you, and your salvation is for his name's sake. Now, that's not to say that we do not have a point in our lives where we come to saving faith. We know that we do have that. But in Romans, we are seeing a lot of the behind the scenes of the gospel. We are seeing a lot of things in here that, that show us the process that God takes us through, the entire process. It's all laid bare in this book. We see all the behind-the-works events and things that God does for us. Ultimately, he will bring it to full fruition. He glorifies us, and we will live together with him in glory. But that's the path, that's the process that we are on if we are believers in Jesus Christ. Once again, it's part of that unbreakable chain. Paul then finishes up the greeting with an actual greeting to these saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both grace and peace have their source in only one place, God. True grace, true peace only comes from God. Here he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a statement of deity here of Jesus Christ. Paul uses that a lot. Jesus Christ is just as much the source of grace and peace as God the Father is. Jesus Christ is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God is God, and true grace and true peace can only be found with having a right relationship with God through the message of the gospel. So that's what I wanted to take you through today. I'm I'm actually amazed we finished the amount of time we had. We're going to see some amazing things regarding the gospel of God in our study of the book of Romans. Uh, You get the idea that Paul, as Paul writes this letter, letter, even as he just introduces it, just tries to write out a simple greeting to these people. He can barely contain himself, giving even this synopsis of many of the things that we will develop in more detail as we work our way through the book. Called by God, being set apart, having obedience of faith, being a bondservant of our Lord, coming, God coming to earth in the flesh, he alone having the power to redeem mankind. There is a lot in just these few verses that we looked at. And what's amazing is that Paul hasn't even gotten started yet. We won't actually get to the meat of the letter until we get to verse 16. But what a remarkable letter this is. And it's my prayer that we will be blessed as we go through it together in the coming days. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and we just give you praise once again for our time together and for this this magnificent, marvelous book of Romans. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you have 
shown to us here through your Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, for, for his ministry. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you used him to uh, minister in the church all those years ago. And we thank you, Lord, that we have um, not only this book, but uh, the other letters, Lord, that we have from, from you to us that we can use to uh, just consume on a daily basis, Lord, to use them in our lives to bring glory and honor to you. And we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that as we look through this book, as we, as we see uh, the gospel unfold through this letter, that, that it would be a burden on our hearts to be witnesses for you, Lord, in each and every day. Just pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a better understanding of, uh, of your plan of salvation, of your work of redemption, Lord, and help us to just be able to use this in a way that is glorifying and honoring to you as we share with those around us that don't know you. I thank you, Lord, for the time that we have together. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us in the next hour that you would give us understanding into your word once again as we hear your word, as we praise you, Lord, as we worship you, and pray, Lord, that it would be uh, just a day that brings glory to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.